0: Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Thanks everybody to listen to who listened to um my last episode which was Into the Grim Dark. If you haven't, check it out. It's about what I call the grim dark anime and I talk about and I was inspired by that show, um Beckoffs which I watch week to week because I hate myself. Um, but is like Really, like, a trashy show in a way that's probably not okay and, like, makes you cringe in the bad way, so to speak. Um, but before we get started, I gotta, I gotta let something out because I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little Mark Marin here and say that I have a dog. My dog is it's starting, like, day before yesterday into yesterday was not doing great. Previously was fine, but day before yesterday into yesterday, so, like, Tuesday into Wednesday, because I usually record these on third day, um, was not doing great, and then she full-on stopped walking. So, like, I, we had to go get her looked at, and it was it was bad, and she's gonna have surgery, but if i seem a little depressed that is why <laughs> but um anyway let's talk about something that is strangely more depressing and that is the subject of this week's podcast and that is infamous and legendary film akira Your Tokyo is going to change soon. What'd you do? You weird little Move out. hands on your head. This boy's pattern is the key to solving the riddle of Akira's growth pattern process. I don't know who that is. If this situation gets out of hand, that needs to be terminated. <laughs> Kaneda, what the hell's going on? The plan is in place already. Don't do it. We get to meet Akira. Well, Akira! Don't hurt anyone else! If you push yourself, you might do irreparable damage! Ah! We go! From legendary director Katsuhiro Otomo comes one of the greatest animated films of all time. Akira! 輸了 Anybody who knows kind of anything cursory about anime, you will probably run into Akira. If you haven't already, I'm actively stunned. But Akira is one of the two films of the late 80s that kind of gave anime this... ultra-violent well, not not necessarily ultra-violent, but this kind of, like, gritty reputation. And uh, the other one I've actually talked about on this podcast um, technically twice, because I talked about the live-action Ghost in the Shell too. but the other one is Ghost in the Shell. And Ghost in the Shell, uh, for my money, uh, I like Ghost in the Shell better, but that's because it dives into, like, our deep, dark cyberpunk future in a way that Akira doesn't because of what Akira is. And, but, when you hear people talk about Akira, oftentimes you'll hear it referred to as the greatest animated movie of all time. So, people will say that, and I might make a case for that by the end of this podcast, but if you've never seen akira a if you're this deep in and you haven't seen akira what are you doing man like it it's on who i think it's on hulu it's definitely on funimation go watch akira like let watch akira and let that happen to your face and the reason why i say let that happen to your face is because so Akira is... I think the original manga is about ten volume, Not ten, but six volumes long. And when I say six volumes, I mean big omnibus, like before omnibus volumes were a thing, volumes. Like, they're like the size of a normal book. We're not talking about, like, a slim $10 manga. We're talking about, like, a $15 investment piece per book, basically. And this thing has become so... Akira as a property has become so infamous, it will probably be in print for eternity. It just just because of the way it looks, of the style it has, and to give you an example of how prevalent it is, in even with a film as insanely popular as Ghost in the Shell, it is not lampooned. It is not imitated by. ...tons and tons of other properties. And what I mean by that is... ...in this film, the animation cut... ...that... ...where... um, ...Kanada, the... ...main... ...the, like... ...the, ostensibly the main character... ...the main protagonist... ...does this slide... ...on his really fancy red motorcycle... ...and that slide... You can go find that slide in the opening to The Simpsons, in Adventure Time, in Star Wars cartoons, in all kinds of insane things, because it is this... And the whole movie, and this is true of the entire film for Akira, the whole movie is painstakingly hand-animated before, before, I should say the advent of, like, digital effects, so when you go see, um, so the 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 film Fireworks is a perfect example. Fi- what Fireworks does, and for those of you who don't know, I've covered Fireworks in this podcast, you can find it in the feed, it's an anime film that I think came out, like, two summers ago, but, um, and it's, it's kind of mediocre, in my, in my opinion. But in lost people's opinion, um, but it it does a lot of its heavy lifting with CGI with computer models basically because because of specifically what it wants to do and the way it wants to do it. Even something like a Makoto Shinkai movie like Your Name, also talked about on this podcast. You can go find it in the feed. That's an insanely good movie that is freakishly, emotionally um, manipulative. Even that film uses, uh, from what I understand, a combination of really stylized CG and, like, layered over hand animation to create its scene. So, basically, it's not that 3D is less work because you have to put a lot of work into doing the model and to, like, and it takes a lot of time to get all that stuff down. But the stuff is reusable. So when you see a scene in Akira where they go back to the same place, but it's all fucked up. um, You're not... That had to be redrawn. Yes, they could trace some of it out and get it that way, but for the most part... That background and those characters and all of that stuff had to be redrawn. You can't just say, "Go get the Kanada model from the character folder, drop him in, and start posing him because it's all hand animation from so what I understand, this movie took like years to make um and is and I think it's like billions upon billions upon millions upon billions of in animation budget. And this movie is a great demonstration of why the industry shifted away from hand animation and into more 3D CG animation and the anime industry. And that's because all of that work was for all, like, this mountains and mountains and mountains of work was for one film that's about two hours and four minutes, the two hours and four minutes long, and it's goddamn beautiful. But the way that release cycles work and the way that all of that stuff works, that's just not feasible, unfortunately. So, like, yes, you can say, you know, Find, find, you know, this director. Give him a budget bigger than God, and have him make something. And occasionally, we do get that. And a lot of times, we get that in the form of like a Miyazaki movie. Although even now, now even Ghibli is experimenting more with 3D CG um, tech. But it's it's for the it's a really difficult. Thing to like make not just a not just a movie if you've never seen Akira I don't you can't really understand why it is so important that you know that this is hand animated because in lots of hand animation you feel you almost feel the constraints of the medium because you feel you feel the walls uh, you feel the you feel the wall, you feel the fourth wall, and you feel the edge of the TV in a way that's like, boom. The reality stops here. There's nothing beyond there. Like, if you popped your head in Looney Tunes style and look to the side, you just see white that's stretching out in- into infinity. But in Akira, because it's so massive and they stuff every scene, especially the scenes that take place in... Like in the city proper in Neo Tokyo, with just piled and piled and piled of visual information in in an attempt to create the kind of visual pollution that cyberpunk, which is the a genre that cribs a lot from Akira even though I would argue Akira isn't necessarily cyberpunk. Um, I think it's more um hot like high fantasy sci fi slash cyberpunk, if that makes any sense. And I'll get to why that is in a second, I promise. But they cram all of this stuff into each shot that you see because not because they wanna in like, enthrall you in awe, and you'd be like, oh my god, this is gorgeous. Although that is a side effect. What they're trying to do is they're trying to convey how humanity has kind of piled on top of itself endlessly for decades, and then blew itself the fuck up, as you see in the beginning of the movie, and then piled on top of itself again for another bunch of decades. And the... You feel that. It it drips from every scene in this movie because everything is like... Everything has kind of a similar quality to what you see on Earth in Cowboy Bebop. Like, stuff is piled on top of each other, and stuff is big and cool and neon, but it's also all mildly fucked up. It's all used a little too hard. It's all... It's all used to excess, basically. And so I have never read the Akira manga. I have had interest in it, believe me, but I just I don't I don't necessarily have super tons of time right now to read the manga. Although that may change. Um an injured dog you have to sit next to and to make you want to read something. Um but The film gives a good depiction of what the universe of Akira is like. It is this this twice-rebuilt variation of Neo-Tokyo where all the excesses of life, all the hedonism, all the... Gluttony, all the everything has kind of overflowed throughout the entire city, and uh, you get the clear you get the clear understanding that the city, that man Tokyo is, even Neo Tokyo has seen better days. It's bad because there are riots in the streets, there are cults, there are like hooligan biker gangs of which. Kaneda and Tetsuo are a part of a particular gang. I don't think they ever give that gang a name in the film proper. But they do talk about their opponent gang, which who are the clowns. And so, here's an odd thing that I that just dawned on me. And some of you listening may be like, Of course, you fucking moron. Of course that's how that happened. If you've ever seen the show Batman Beyond, there is a gang called the Jokers, and the idea is that, like, the original Joker at some point fucking died, and they get into that with the Batman film, which is technically an anime, because it's animated by a Japanese studio. I forget which one. Because I'm fucking awful. Um, but... They cover that with, I think, the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. I think it's the name of the movie. But, basically, once he disappeared, because they still wanted, like, a ever-present Joker tie-in into that, they have the Jokers, which if you've seen the Jokers as a, like, street hoodlum gang, they and you've seen Akira, you can pause and think... They seem an awful lot like the clowns from the beginning of Akira, and at this point, I want to bring up the the score or the soundtrack of Akira, which i'm but you can find a variation of on um Apple music, but I don't think you can find all of it on apple music um or like it proper on Apple music. that's a huge problem with anime soundtracks because um. Japanese music licensing is fucked. But the soundtrack for Akira has this very, like, future tribal feel to it that is that isn't wholly unique for anime. Um, Ghost in the Shell does it as well. Um, So it, it has this by, and they use very clearly. They're not using necessarily like synthesizers and all of that shit. They're using, and they use it sparingly, like actual instruments. And they're it's just woven together in such a way, and woven into the, in and out of the film in such a way, where it makes it feel futuristic, which is really fascinating. Um. So I am at an impasse here. A spoilers from this point on for Akira. We're gonna talk I'm gonna talk about the whole damn thing. But also it is difficult to talk about this movie. And if you've seen it, you understand what I mean, because lots of people will argue, like, what the fuck is the plot to Akira? And you can watch it tons of times and not take away a plot. Because and part of that is because of what I mentioned earlier, which is, this is originally, I think, a th- six giant volumes of fucking manga, and there's way more story in that manga than there is in this movie. What they did is they took bits and pieces of, from across the manga, and they, like, compressed it down into a film. And that's ka- what Katsuhiro Otomo put out into the world. Katsuhiro Otomo is the director of Akira and he also worked on a anthology film called Robot Carnival which I don't think I've talked about yet but Robot Carnival is real fun you should if you haven't seen Robot Carnival you should go out and watch Robot Carnival I think Katsuhiro Otomo's section of that is a thing called Clouds which is weird and dreamy and also good but it so basically Akira takes all of this manga info and compresses it down into what it tries to work out as a story. And for... The long and short of the story is basically there's these two rival members of the same gang. They've been with each other for their entire lives, but one of them has grown up to be, like, the leader of the his, the biker gang and really confident, and the other one Has kind of just grown up to be the fuck up. And the one who's grown up to be the leader of the biker gang is Kaneda. And Kaneda is. has this really iconic, all red, all red everything look, this bike that. So. You let. So, first off, I'm gonna have a few breaks of, like, common sense because. There's some parts of this movie that are like, oh, the, uh, this city has to be real fucked up for this to be true. So basically what happens is, what they li- lead you to believe that happens is, is that these biker gangs do not actually go out and buy bikes. They steal the fuck out of them. And Canada, Kaneda's bike, I forget what the name of the... I don't think they ever gave the bike a name, but it's this iconic, red, like, super souped up, insane motorcycle. And if you've ever seen the poster for Akira, you've seen the, like, this red, beautiful, kind of chunky, streamlined motorcycle that he rides. And it's, it's like, got all these stickers on it, and this is... Canada like look and like the like tailored look of him is one of the ways this movie like sells you on instantly because one of the first shots you see is of Kaneda at a juke at a jukebox and you just see the back of his jacket and it has this pill on it and it also had this thing that says and the pill is accompanied by saying. I don't think on the back of his jacket, but I think but I know it is on his bike. And it's this, it's this advertisement for this drug, for this pill that is a drug they call capsules in the film. And it says, good for health, bad for education, like, around it, on the sticker on his bike. And he's also got a sticker for the can, for Canon cameras on his bike. He's got a bunch of stickers. Um, so, Canon is the one that I recognize, the others are Japanese companies, and this... I'm probably leaving out another sticker I recognize, but... And this, um... capsule motif, are on his bike. And just, like... The feel of, like, that bike combined with Canada, and, like, the... You can feel the fact that he, like, that He got these stickers and he like plastered his, and he put them all over his bike and he was like, yeah, this is real fucking, ba- yeah, I like this, so I'm gonna stick it on my bike because I like my bike. And like, just the way he looks, the way he puts himself together, the way he holds himself, he had this feel of like, a confident young fucking gang gangster biker. And then you meet Tetsuo and Tetsuo is like terminally stuck in the gang in Kaneda's shadow. Uh, but more than that, everybody kind of like uh, he's like the lovable charity case. Is the way is the way that people look at him. They're like, oh, just let just let Kaneda ha- handle it. It's fine. You're fine, Tetsuo. Just, stand in the corner, it's fine. And, because he's this, like, punk kid who wants to be a man, who wants to impress his girlfriend, Kauri, that's the other thing, is that all these, all the guys in Canada's biker gang have, like, uh, floozies, I want to describe them as, that they, like, hang out, that they, like, hang out with, quote-unquote, that, that is, like, That, like, the girlfriends, those are the girlfriends, they're all just the bitchiest bitches ever. And so, uh, these kids are all, like, fucked up delinquents. And when I say fucked up delinquents, I mean fucked up delinquents. They seem to have no parents. They go to a boarding school. They go to like a boarding school in this hellhole of a city, and they just kind of like roam the streets at night and like fuck around and hang out in this bar and like do fucking drugs because you're led to believe that like so. Actually, a great analogy for this is um the prevalence of CBD. So, if you haven't heard of CBD, CBD is a product that they get basically by grinding up the flowers of hemp and, like, um, diluting it in oil, and it's just, like... It's not that it's illegal, but it's also it's based on like a on a opioid product and it's got heavy connotations of being tied back to pot, which is not legal everywhere in the world or especially in America where I where I'm broadcasting from. And in case some of you American listeners are wondering, yes, I have listeners all over the world. Hi, listen. And and shout out to my listeners in Paris and Tokyo and all that shit. But the So it's a it's a really good analogy for something like the capsule, because the capsules are clearly sold by a bar and like people can get stickers of like the capsules and like their logo and like their like the capsules have a logo. Basically, like the capsules have like a Coca Cola like presence, but they're clearly not like a thing that people just go do. Cigarettes are in many ways the same, um, but so like they're like popping pills and running and running drills and killing clowns and the whole world of these kids' lives is just fucked. In a way that is... In a way that takes a like decision to commit that is impressive. So another... um, A great experimentation in just committing to how fucking weird and how fucking deep and dark you can make a show is actually two um versions of this are um Black Lagoon, which I've definitely done an episode on, and I think I've done an episode of Jormungand, but I'm not sure. But those two shows, like they take their premise of like, these guys are fucking balls to the wall, evil, like like not evil, but certainly not good people. Like these guys are bad guys that you're following around And we're just going to commit to that. In the same... But... Akira doesn't do it in the same way. Because Akira makes a... Is one of the few... Anime... Where it, like, makes you understand... These kids are kids. And, like, they're doing fucked up shit... Because they don't have any supervision... And... But they're really only kids. Like, in Akira... The adults look like adults, the kids look like kids, and the blue creepy baby adults look like blue creepy baby adults. Get with it! But, so, anyway. They have this run in with the clowns where they're beating the shit out of them, and then you, but at the same time, you're following this, like, dad, what you suspect is a dad and his kid running away from the police and police dogs, and spoiler alert. The dad shoots the dogs. But, um... In... But, so... You kind of come to a head of... Both situations... By seeing... That the kid is not a little kid. He is like... A tiny old... Blue old man. He's like a giant Smurf, basically. Like a giant wrinkly fucking Papa Smurf. And... Uh, Tesuo sees this kid, freaks out, tries to side-stop his bike, smacks into the kid, and the bike explodes. And by the time Kaneda and the others reach him, the military has shown up. They take the kid back. The kid's name is... The blue kid is named Takashi, that one. Um, and then they also are like, you know what? Takes a punk, and they take Tetsuo, and Kanada and all of Kanada and Tetsuo's friends object, but the military's like, fuck you, and kind of kicks the... Sh- like, almost kicks the shit out of them, and then basically gets them... submits them to, like, a... a whole a a military holding area designed to quash the, to, to quash coups and the um basically permanent riots that are happening. And they, so they get out of that and they're told that they have to go back to school. And what follows is... So it's really dark to call... S- Parts of this movie comical, but there are parts of this movie that are deeply fucked and comical as hell. And one of them is when they get back to their school, and the school is, like, totally a school for delinquents. Like, they show the statue in front of the school, and it's got, like, bras and, like, lipstick drawings and graffiti on it. But, like, in front of their home t- homeroom teacher... And he's, like, talking about, like, how they have to be... How they have to be respectable. Have to, how they have to shape up. How this is their last stop before prison. And then he just goes... Starts screaming discipline. And smacking the daylight out of these kids in the face. Just, like, discipline! Bitch smack to the floor! Discipline! Bitch smack to the floor! Actually, I'm gonna see if I can't find... This and put this in here. This school is your last chance. If trash like yourselves can't keep up with the academic ability of regular students, this is it. If you can't live a decent social life, you end up here. And if you screw up here, it's the end of the road. Also, even though you're under 15, if you get more than 50 penalty points on your record, you're sent to the regular courts. Yeah, bite me. Don't mess with us, you bald Are old any goat. of You lost you me halfway through, sir. Discipline! Oh. Discipline! 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 DISMISSED! You, oh. you loser! You and me are going to go at it someday, We're Jack! We're to remember Rotten this, buddy! Yeah, you sick mother! But, so, that that is a thing that happens, and... The thing that's great about this movie, the thing that's really excellent about this movie, is that this movie finds a way to do what great storytelling does at its best, which is it advances a plot while letting you know more information about the world you're spending time in. So, for example, a bad way to do that is something like Naruto, which is, has great world building at moments, but it other moments, it's just like, oh, we're still here. And they t- and also, a thing that anime takes time out of its runtime to do often is it stops and it's like, okay, let me explain this shit to you. And even great anime that everybody likes do this. Ghost in the Shell does it. Ghost in the Shell is basically a whole film of ennui. In the digital cyber hellpunk future or digital cyberpunk hellscape future rather, but akira doesn't stop it it just it presents you with all the information at once and it and in that way it makes you feel like you're watching a real thing, it makes you feel like you're watching something where no one's gonna stop and stare at the camera and go, this is what's happening, this is why it's happening, got it memorized. Yeah, I, I, I haven't played Kingdom Hearts 3 because I only have a Switch, but I hear that Axel also said got it memorized in that one, in Kingdom Hearts 3, like, to the camera. I like, can you believe this shit? Um, But because of that, it's just, it feels so natural and so uninhibited by the fact that, like, it, it knows that you're missing part of what's happening, but it gets you so caught, caught up so quickly in what's happening right now that you're like, I really don't care how Tetsuo and, and Kaori met. I just care that they clearly, like, love each other to death. We'll get to that. Fuck. um, And that they are like... They're like... Do or die. We'll be together forever. And... So this is the point I want to bring up here. Is that... The crucial difference... I That I perceive... Between Tetsuo and Kaneda... Is that Kaneda... Is like... This brash... Like big actions and big meanings and like depiction of a protagonist, but he's also kind of an asshole and the there's a scene in this movie that that happens right after the discipline scene um where they all they' all get out of class and they're all like, "Fuck, we're going home." We're, we're just gonna go hang out and pretend this fucking never happened and proceed to never go to school again because fuck that asshole. Um and this is the point which all of their, like really like fabulously eighties Jane Fonda aerobics video girlfriends, like find them and kinda just like, get the fuck off me, you bitch. Stop being so clingy. And you have to understand, like, one of them slid into a fucking explosion and the rest of them were detained by the military. <laughs> like, these girls were like, oh, fuck, you're still alive. And Kaneda's reaction to his girlfriend being like, oh, fuck, you're still alive. I'm so happy. It's like, Fuck off, bitch. And... But... Tetsuo's reaction to Cowrie being like... I didn't know... When Tetsuo escapes his... Medication room... In... The... In a similar scene to that... Actually, not a similar scene. That comes later. But... We'll get to Yeezy, I promise. Um, uh, Kaori is like genuinely concerned about him, and he, he was looking for Tesuo for for um Canada, but he when he sees Kaori he's genuinely genuinely happy to see Cowrie. He tells her what happened to the best of his ability, and he's like, "They were fucking with my head. They had me in some sort of machine," and you see that. Yes, Kaneda seems like he's like the scrawny fuck-up of the gang, but he has a full relationship with his girlfriend. He has a empathy. He ha- he cares about things. and He is just... And the moments in which the movie portrays him as weak are to get you to understand... Not that you should see him as weak, but that the people in his life ultimately see him as weak. And that the way his life has progressed has, like, slowly tamped him down over time, over and over and over again, until he is the way he is when we get to him. So... After having a run-in with like with bikers, and he is reunited with Kaneda, you at the they these bikers basically attack and attempt to rape Kauri. Uh They also attack Canada, um, Tethro because Tethro had taken Kaneda's bike, and at and there was a point at which does, like, my bike's too much for you in the beginning of the film. And you're taking to mean, like, that's just two old friends fucking with each other. But when Tesoro's riding the bike, he's like, or driving, or riding the bike, I guess is the right word. He's like, slowly figuring out, like, oh, this bike is fucking weird. And he says, that, like, the motor can't drop below 500 RPMs, even when you're changing gears, which means that it takes real skill to ride. Kan- to for Canada to like just ride his motorcycle, especially as good as as well as he does, and the whole, so J so Canada catches up with them. And they beat the shit out of the clowns that, like, found them. And then they have another scene where you see Kaori waking up in the background. And she's all fucked up and bloodied. And, like, with a fat lip, a black eye, they ripped her top off. And she's got, she's got a she's got not kind of a jacket on, but a jacket on. And Tetsuo is kicking the shit out of the clown that, like, tried to rape Calrie. And Kaneda says, Stop it. Stop it now. You're gonna kill him. Is that what you want? Are you sure that's what you want? And in that moment, in that scene, you realize that Kaneda and Tesuo are are really friends. It's not just Tetsuo is this weakling who clung to Canada for his entire life. It's that they are actually friends. It's that they are actually, like, really good friends. But because Canada is so headstrong and so type-A protagonisty, basically, <laughs> Tetsuo had developed this... ...inferiority complex because he feels like he can't stand up for himself. He feels like he can't... ...he can't be a man in the way that this... ...in the way that it it typically means to be a man. And... ...in... 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 ...Kaneda's defense, I think that he it's fine with the way Tetsuo is and that he doesn't mean to, like, fuck, to make him feel so bad when he fucks with him. He's just, like, he's doing the same thing. He's just better at it. He's trying to be a man. He's trying to, like, be macho and, like, be a, we- a, like, well-meaning dirtbag, basically. And, as a, re- but as a result, Tetsuo has this Huge inferiority complex, and the way that comes back to, comes to like mean something in the movie is it turns out that Kana, that Tetsuo is like Takashi, the giant Papa Smurf. Um, which when I say d- giant, I mean like toddler sized Papa Smurf, but older. Um, like Takashi. I think the other one's name is Yuzu, and I forget the one that looks like Steve Bannon's name. Um, but, um, there's, uh, there are these three children, and they are the psychic children, and they all have numbers on their hands. I think Takashi is 25, the girl is, like, no, the girl is 25, Takashi is 26. I think that the, that Steve Bannon is, twenty seven and the reason why I keep calling him Steve Bannon is because I forget I think it was Dave from Dave I think it was no it wasn't Dave, it was um Joel from Dave and Joel from Fat from Fat Karate. Um from Fat Karate for the gentleman of uh, another podcast said something about Steve Bannon. And Akira, or I did to him on Twitter, and then he laughed, I laughed, and then I went down the dark path of photoshopping Steve Bannon's head onto the top of the like, um, kid, the on top of the blue kid from Akira that's in the wheelchair, and that lives on my phone somewhere. Um, I might post that to Instagram again and be like, hey, I made this, but they are all. Not successful but um not unsuccessful, Experiment experimentally developed by the military psychics and there was this big explosion in the beginning of the movie that takes place like ten years before you encounter the proper story. And then there was another big explosion that was led to be- you were led to believe was World War Three. Um or you're told, with World War Three, But, um, basically, the first big explosion, the first big event of the movie is, was the death of the titular character of the movie, Ak- Akira. And Akira was the 28th child, the 28th child. He was the 28th subject of this, Big weird experimental thing of turning kids into psychics that could be used as weapons for the military. And oh, also, I want to be clear there's all kinds of side characters that I'm not going to really get into because it's not what I'm interested in looking at in this movie, and you can spend probably a whole, like, season of a podcast on this move on Akira alone, if you wanted to, like, really get into it and break it down. But, so, Tetsuo starts having these visions when, he, when they're giving him this medication that is basically waking up his latent psychic power. But the thing is, is that he's already in a really fucked up mental state because he has a huge inferiority complex he had no sense of authority or belonging or any of that that to heap on like the awakening of psychic powers on top of that it's just the cocktail for bad and at the same time he's hearing some someone calling out to him and this someone is named Akira and you find out later when the general that the military sort of clean cut, very angry military man, general who, um, oh, I forget his name but you find out, you find out eventually that Akira dead he was, once he died the government bisected every little piece of him and put all the samples in like a blast freezer and sunk it under the Tokyo Dome and were like, this is for later we fucked up we out. And so... Uh, and no one knows what's going on, really, except for the three psychic kids, the three blue people. I- except for midget blue man group, nobody knows what's happening. And the... So Tetro Eventually, freak the fuck out. Partially because the blue kids like coax them on. You are led to believe they coax them on because they know that will lead them to Akira as well. And the idea is that like these three kids and Akira were all friends in this facility that they like, where they were all trained to be, were they all forcibly trained to be to be psychic be human weapons with psychic power, and will eventually snaps and that's where you get the scene that is now re uh, that now turned into a Kanye West music video for Stronger, where Kanye West is like psych powering down a hospital floor. That is from Akira. If you've never seen Akira but you've seen that music video, that's what that's from. Um and it. So, he freaks out. He eventually be- figures out that he has enough psychic power to basically be invincible. And he decides to go find Akira. And the Colonel is freaking out. The Colonel's like, Yo, I gotta go stop this fucker, because he's gonna murder us all. Which, he's not wrong. And then, also... Uh, Kaneda is concerned, and he's like, because the way that you start really understanding that Tesla's having these visions is after he beats the shit out of the biker gang guy, out of the clown. He basically has an LSD incident where he freaks out and runs away. Um, and. Leaving Canada and the gang and Kyrie, like, where the fuck did he go? Oh no, he was actually recovered by the military, and they're like, "What the fuck with that? Why do they keep jacking our friend, yo?" And so, Canada teams up with this girl named Kay, who's part of this rebellion, who try who is trying to, like, right the ship of how fucked up and corrupt Neo-Tokyo has gotten. And they bust into the military, like, thing to find Kanda. They ultimately find Kanda. And then he blows everybody away and leaves. And at this point, like, they're bringing out tanks against Kanda, and they're bring, bringing out, like, crazy laser guns and shit. And kind of, it's just, and everybody keeps, so here's the other thing, and this, this is another interesting thing. So, if you're in America right now, and, or you follow American News right now, you know that there's a lot of conspiracy theories happening, like, all over the fucking place. You know that there's, like, you know, Uranium One, and all this other, like, weird political conspiracies happening. Um, somehow, in Akira, the general populace knows who the fuck Akira is, although, to be fair, when a person you are trying to keep secret wipes the entire wipes your entire city off the map, it is hard to keep that under wraps. But, basically, this doomsday cult has sprung up Around the idea of the idea, quote unquote, of Akira, and is like, he will come back and he will bring us all to the promised land. And it's led by one of my single favorite character designs in all of anime. And I constantly refer to him as Panic Fro. (laughs) And it's just this priest with like the tiny Chinese, um, Circular Chinese... the Shinto priest with these tiny circular Chinese merchant glasses on. And, like, this big-ass afro with these, like, Splatoon female inkling, like, pigtails coming out of it. And he's just, like, Buddhist-style praying to Akira to save them all. Eventually, he fucking slides into a ditch and dies. Because that's the way this movie goes. But when all of these protesters and all of these cult members see Tesuo, like, facing down tanks and fucking them up, they are like, Akira is here! Akira has come to take this to the promised land! Because they're morons. And Tetsuo's like, why is everybody calling me fucking Akira? I know I'm not! That's the guy who's talking to me in my fucking skull. And he flies off, goes to Tokyo Dome, busts open the blast freezer, and finds that Akira is a bunch of jars. It's at this point when he has his first run-in with Kaneda, and Kaneda cuts his arm off. And he uses his psychic powers to make this badass robo-arm which slowly, but his powers don't stop there, they start trying to absorb everything. And ultimately, he turns into another iconic scene of this, of this anime, which is Baby Tetsuo. Which is like, so, have you ever seen the mad scientist um Shinigami Squad Head from, um... Bleach. His... His special sword, like, the one that turns into the giant science murder baby, is based off of the Akira, like, like Tetsuo, turning into that gi- the giant goo baby, basically, that, cons- that, like, reaches out and, like, consumes every... and, like, absorbs basically everything. And this is where you get the iconic like, sound clip of them yelling, KANADA! row" Over and over and over and over again. And, um, if I liked Johnny M. Bosch, I would feel bad for his throat, for having to do that 900 times. But I don't. Because Johnny M. Bosch plays Kanada. Um, not for that reason, I just think Johnny Ambosh kind of an asshole. But, um, <laughs> that's the feeling I get. But, um... So, this all like culminates with the three, like the, the midget blue man group three, flat, like overwhelming him and basically causing another Akira level explosion. At the end of which, there are actually people, like, so the other thing I should mention is people live through this shit. So, <laughs> um, Kanada's left alive, and he's left alive with Tay, and they have to, like, rebuild the world, basically. Now, I know that took me a long time to get through because I stopped to, like, ramble and all that shit, but that's, like, the story. There's lots of stuff surrounding that. And, uh, like I said, you could probably spend at least an an entire season, if you really wanted to, breaking down Akira as a film, like, brick by brick. But I don't really think that's useful. And, uh, so... (sighs) There is this fetishism, I'm gonna call it, about... Animate about animators and animated and animation. I should be clear, animated and animation by people who don't do it for a living by people and by people who either understand it conceptually or they don't, or they aren't capable of doing it. And they like they have some idea, but they don't have any desire to do it themselves. But they have this idea of, like, you know, art is great because great art is great, is the way I would put it. And that manifests in things like um, Sakuga fans and fans of whole studios, like, the cult that, like, surrounds Studio Trigger, where they think, like, Studio Trigger, the end-all, be-all, the best, and there are tons of people like this. I encounter them all the time. But, and some of that is warranted. Some of that is, like, believe me, I love anime, and I uh, I do a podcast about it every day for the past, like, three years of some insane shit. Um, for past longer than that, past, like, whenever I graduate, close to whenever I graduate, past a lot of years. But, lots of times people forget to just Sit and appreciate something to just experience something because they want to get so like down to a granular level and like dissect it and study it and like try try to understand what it's made of without really appreciating it as a thing. And so a while back there was um like I want to say a month ago there was this thing on Twitter that was going around on Twitter and it was. Um, the director of Mission Impossible Fallout and Tom Cruise telling basically the world how to turn off motion smoothing from their, from their, on their home television. And their reasoning is sound and good in that motion smoothing fucks everything up. Like, if you're watching, motion smoothing is like, was like invented so people could show sports on TV in electronic storage. It's not actually meant for you to fucking watch anything on it. It is basically like the store display setting for TVs. And their main, their reason for this was, we made, we make all these directors and actors and people pour their lives into these movies. And you get home and your TV fucks it the hell up we want to make sure that you get the best possible experience watching our movie. And what I found interesting was they could have gone into, like, this is the craft of making movies. This is why you need to, like, love it. And this is how important this craft is and all this other stuff. But no, they stuck to a very simple message, and they said, we want you to see the movie... In its best light, Here's how you do that. Go. And. Oftentimes. Art is obscured and studied and like rolled around. So much to the point where it's like. You feel like you're being told not to. Not to just stand and appreciate it. You're being told to stand and study and understand it. And the two can be different, because as much as you might understand the technical stuff behind a um, Leonardo da Vinci sketch, you might not enjoy it. You might appreciate that it exists, but you might not actually enjoy it. And it's important to realize that difference, because I genuinely enjoy... Akira. I, I understand that, like, tons of everything went into that, but I have a, I have only a few moments where my, like, understanding of animation, understanding of the Herculean task of creating Akira pops me out of watching that movie, and I'm like, whoa. They did all of this. And it, it's... It's important for people to really get into something and to really appreciate it, and appreciate it for what it is, and not, not have to treat the thing like you're going to be tested on it later. Cause one of the most interesting things that I think Akira does is at the beginning of the movie. It gives a whole white screen to tell you Kasuhiro Otomo directed this movie. The movie is literally telling you who the director is up front in a way that you can't miss it. You do not need to do anything to know who directed this movie other than go watch it from end to end and you will know. And you don't need to know, but you also don't need to know that Gynax was one of the assisting studios on this movie, which is insane. That, you know, all of the different people worked on it. Because, at their core, any form of entertainment just wants you to enjoy it. If you take away from it that this person or that person worked on it, great. But, that's not the primary goal. If you're going through your anime fandom right now, and you're like, well like I know about this voice actor and this voice actress and this director and that director and this manga artist and that manga artist how how much do you actually enjoy those people's work how much do you time do you spend watching the work watching or reading or experiencing the work as opposed to researching it to give you a good example uh When I watched Kill the Kill, I did that for this, for this, um, podcast, you can go find the link in the description. You know, a Studio Trigger show is so dripping with references and with, like, callbacks and, like, animation flourishes that... A show like Kill a Kill is, like, packed to the brim with references. And with, like, concepts and deconstructions and reconstructions and all of that shit. But what makes it a great show isn't that all that stuff is there. What makes it a great show is that it's still a great show if you don't know any of that. If you saw Kill a Kill right now and you had no idea who Studio Trigger was, you would say to yourself, Damn fun. And you wouldn't, your first thought would not have been, I wonder who made that. Maybe I should go look, maybe I should go contribute through their Patreon. And I, I think that's important that, like, creators get recognized, get help, and all that stuff. But I think that the kind of fetishization of, like, this thing will be good because it's from this person, or this group of people, just... Shouldn't that like that? Shouldn't be if you go watch Robot Carnival, the section of Robot Carnival, Katsuhiro Otomo is responsible for Clouds. It's a very different piece of animation. If you go watch, um, so I think I covered this on the podcast, or I think I think I did cover this on the podcast, but if you go watch Terran Resonance, which is directed by, um, the director of which a direct which is directed and hound by the director of Cowboy Bebop. That show is while it's an okay show feels so disappointing because Shiro Watanabe is capable of like creating Cowboy Bebop, Space Dandy, on the tenth. Carol and Tuesday f- comes out. On Netflix, I'm just going to, like, lean back and pour that into my skull. And he also did Kids on the Slope. He creates all of these shows, but they're all varying quality and very th- varied themes. And while they all may have the same craft to them, they're not all great shows. There's going to be some hits and some misses, and... It, at its core, Akira just wants you to enjoy it, to, to look at it in awe and say, this is amazing. Not because of all the craft that went into it, all, the cra- all of that craft went into it, only so you could enjoy it. If you become obsessed with, like, who did the soundtrack? Who animated these keyframes? Who animated those keyframes? Who did this sakiga moment? Who animated the bike sequence? If I was insane, this would be the point at which I tell you who, who animated the bike sequence, but I do not know. You could probably find that on the internet, I promise. Um. But the movie wants you to enjoy it on face value. It wants you to walk out of the theater and not want to watch anything or listen to anything for a few moments because it was that good. I have, uh, so, I have an interesting relationship with media, and this is where I'll kind of end it, because I know it's over an hour already, and I'm a crazy fucking person. I have an interesting relationship with media, and when I say media, I mean video games, I mean anime, I mean movies, I mean books, I mean comic books, I mean manga, in that it's really easy for me to hook myself into a story, and I become really, like, watching that stuff affects me. Even the dumbest shit affects me. So, to give you an example, I give a shit about the characters in Spec Ops Asuka. I shouldn't. If you wonder why, listen to the previous episode of this podcast. I give a shit about, to some extent, the characters of Black Clover. Not the main character, he can suck a dick, but the characters around him, I kind of care about, because I'm, I'm gullible, I guess. But what I'm saying is, is that, like, I, well, I don't leave my feelings with an anime once I click it off, and that is true for, I would bet, the majority of people listening to this right now. But I can still feel what I felt at the end of Akira two days ago. I can still viscerally viscerally feel that in my spine. I (laughs) try not to watch one of my favorite anime of all time too much, El 7, because the middle of that show spirals me into a depression so hard that people are like, what's wrong with Alex? Is he suicidal? And then my friend Lauren, hi, Lauren, is like, no, he's just in the middle of a wreck of seven. Like, he'll get through it and he'll be happy, but in the middle of that show, he tends to take a, take a dark road. <laughs> and I, I think that Akira does gets at this feeling of friendship and the complexity of friendships and the complexity of imperfect friendships because there are no perfect friendships in, like, one of the most amazing ways I've ever seen. And on that note, if you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, leave me a five-star rating on your podcatcher of choice, whatever app you listen to this on um you can check out a lot of the other episodes um on my web portal my website lunchboxpublishing.com there'll be a link in the description to that um but until next time I have been Alex you have been listening to Lunchbox Radio and I'll talk to you later